As we continue in this day our consideration of the wonder of the resurrection, we read from Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so... Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. 
And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The text to which I call your attention this evening is Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Children of God, we long for the perfection of holiness. We long to see Jesus face to face. That longing is there by the principle of the new life that is in us, the wonder work of God's grace. As a fruit of that resurrection gospel, We can say with Job in Job 19, verses 25 and 26, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. But that longing is very often suppressed by our flesh and our strong earthly ties. The fact is, as we are now, we are unable to look upon the glory of the risen Christ. Those who would make images of him, those who would attempt to set Christ before us in pictures and stained glass and what have you, are guilty not of bringing Christ before the people, because he would certainly be brought before us in his appointed way, namely by his word. But they are guilty of belittling Christ's glory, of making him less than what he really is. That's a tragic thing. A person who thinks little of the Christ thinks proportionally less of the evil of sin and therefore becomes callous to the past and careless in the present. Because the man who thinks lightly of God's glory and the glory of our Redeemer has little reason for thanks 
and will have none of what is true comfort in his or her own life. Because only if our Savior be the exalted, living, glorious God, do we have safety in all our troubles and comfort in all our tribulations. We cannot exaggerate, therefore, the greatness and glory of the risen Lord. There were times, after all, even when he was on earth, that he gave people a glimpse of his glory. It was more than they could take. To some degree, that was the case even with the wonders that he performed. It astounded those who saw them and who were the recipients of them. But I think, for example, of the time when Jesus ascended the mount with Peter, James, and John and was transfigured before them. And our children will remember, because we've talked about this in catechism classes, that word transfigured means that his figure changed. That is, his appearance changed. And at the change of his appearance, his disciples were given a glimpse of his glory. His clothes became shiny, exceeding white, white as snow, and Moses and Elijah appeared to talk with him, and the cloud overshadowed them with God himself speaking out of that cloud. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And at that first change of appearance, the disciples were so overcome Peter began to stammer in talk that wasn't even fit for the occasion. It was too much for them to comprehend. They didn't know how to react before that glory. But when God spoke out of that cloud, we read that they fell on their faces and were sore afraid. So we read again of John. Many years later now, as he's given the wonderful visions on the island of Patmos near the end of his earthly sojourn, John is now an old man. Some 60 years had passed, give or take a few, since the Lord had laid down his life and risen again. Remember that prior to those events, John had been the disciple who was closest to the Lord. He's identified in Scripture as the disciple whom the Lord loved. But when, at the moment recorded in our text, Christ appears in his state of glory. John writes, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It was one thing to look upon Jesus Christ 
when he was veiled in his earthly flesh, in our flesh. But should he now come to us and expose us to his glory, it would be more than we could take. Nevertheless, he instructs John in Revelation 1, verse 19, to write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. He would have us see by the word the glory of him who died and rose again from the dead for our sakes, and that he would have us see that he works all things according to his own will and good pleasure, as that's in perfect harmony with the counsel of the triune God. He who died and now lives is he who has the keys of hell and of death and who gives life to all you who believe. As we continue our consideration of Christ's resurrection today, look at the fruits of that resurrection, I point you to the ever-living Christ. We notice his magnificent glory, his perfect work, and his eternal existence. The magnificent glory of the risen and exalted Savior is set before us in the verses that immediately precede our text, but which comes to culmination in its description by the reaction of the apostle and the response of Christ as recorded in verses 17 and 18 of Revelation 1. I saw him, John said. John, while yet in this flesh, was given to see the exalted Christ in the magnitude of his glory. And it was this sight that made him faint with fear. This aged saint had seen Christ when he dwelt among men. And at the time, Jesus was a man among men. To obtain their redemption, to accomplish the reconciliation of his people with God, he had made himself of no reputation and had taken on him the form of a servant. That for that reason, I say, even when Jesus performed his miracles and the flashes of his Godhead shone forth, they were muted, as it were, by his humanness. And now John is given to see him as the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. The exalted Christ stands in the likeness of him whom Daniel had been given to see toward the end of the Old Testament, as we read in Daniel 7, verses 9 and following. 
Listen as Daniel records the vision of the Almighty God. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. When you compare these two passages, you see the, all, the exalted Christ reflecting the likeness of the Almighty God, whose he is, and from whom he came forth. None in heaven or on earth can compare with Christ in his glory. But seeing that glory brought John to his knees. Indeed, he says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That fear came partly by the sense of his own weakness and insignificance in the presence of such divine glory. You know, we don't read anything of John's life that gives us reason to think that he had been dramatically saved from a life of gross, despicable sin. We don't ever read of John falling into a sin devastating to the conscience, as have many of God's people, including the saints recorded in Scripture. By all outward appearances, John was a man brought up in the Old Testament Scriptures, embraced by the mercies of Christ, and given a place as, the ser- as a servant of Christ and his church. But as he stands at the end of his life and is given to gaze upon his Savior, He experiences that which Job experienced in Job 42, 5 and 6, simply awestruck at the sight that he's given to see and saying, I have heard of thee by the hearing of mine ear, but now mine eye doth see thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Even this aged pastor, which John was, fully aware of that blessed gospel of the righteousness of Christ, freely imputed to him by grace alone, which had been impressed upon his soul by the Spirit's work, in him and through the word, even that knowledge, I say, was not able to hold him up under the astounding sense of the Lord's majestic 
holiness. I would say it is often the case, and the experience of many of you, especially the older that you get, knowing that the day of your deliverance cannot be far off, that when you are given to perceive the majesty and holiness of God and His exalted Son, you're also humbled and filled with holy awe, even a sense of fear at the infinite chasm between us and Him. And so great can be that fear, in fact, that the devil himself will seize upon it to terrorize us. That's sometimes possible, especially when a child of God is weakened physically. The death struggle through which many of God's people go is indeed a struggle. It's a wrongful feeling of unworthiness to enter the Lord's presence and a forgetfulness of the magnitude of His wonder of grace for us and the power of His Spirit in us. But the words of our text tell us that from the place of His exaltation, Christ speaks. Fear not. Fear not. The Lord would remind John that he stands before him who is the first and the last, the ever-living, crucified and risen Savior. In all his glory, the faith, our faithful Savior Jesus Christ remains the same yesterday and today and forever. As glorious as he is, with that glory that goes beyond our present comprehension and in fact brought the beloved apostle with his face to the ground, Jesus is the same Christ as when he was here on earth. I am he that liveth and was dead. The same one who came into this world in our flesh, who suffered his entire earthly sojourn, finally to be nailed to the accursed tree and bearing the suffering of God's infinite wrath against our sins, and who was raised from the dead and exalted at God's right hand in heavenly glory, now says to you and to me, Fear not. Fear not. Notice, too, that John writes, And he laid his right hand upon me. Our Savior. lays his hand upon us. That hand that was pierced 
with the nail because of our sins. He lays that hand upon us and lifts us up. From His exalted throne on high, He lifts us up and draws us to Himself that we might hear those words, fear not, and know they are spoken to us. And how necessary that is. He had spoken it earlier. It's recorded in his gospel account, John 6, verse 44. But Jesus had said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And after it had been made very clear by the unbelief of many that this was exactly the truth, that no man can come to him except the Father which has sent him draw us, Jesus said again, Therefore said I unto unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my Father. And all the more is that the case when we stand before the exalted Christ. Because he it was who came into the world to condemn sin. And as John certainly experienced, in our sinfulness, we dare not approach him. We flee from him. If we are to hear his fear not, he must first lift us up by his hand, drawing us to himself with that power which the Father has now given to him, so we shall stand before his glory and hear these words with application to us. Fear not. Fear not. And beloved, I would impress upon you how how important it is that you and I know the glory of our Redeemer. It's only when we have a proper perspective of these things that our perspective will be right in other matters. When we have elevated thoughts of Christ, when we consider that in His exaltation, He comes to us and draws us to himself and bestows his life upon us by his Holy Spirit. Then we will see the magnitude of our salvation because it took his death and resurrection to deliver us from the depths of hell and of death that our guilt and sin had plunged us into and to reconcile us unto God. To know the riches of Him who became poor for our sakes that we might be rich is the only way in which we shall properly express our gratitude to Him 
not only by our giving, as is the application in 2 Corinthians 8, but in our confession and in our whole life as we conduct ourselves in the midst of this world. When we have elevated thoughts of His glory and realize what He has done, not only for us, but in us, then our love for Him grows, as does the gratitude that flows out of that love. But to that end, it's necessary that we go on to our second point and consider His perfect work. He is the one who was dead. When our Lord applies these words to himself, he speaks of the accomplishment of his work atoning for the sins of his people. Death is the wages of sin. So the Bible teaches us death is the inevitable and unavoidable result of sin. It's the hand of God against us. And that's exactly why death is an enemy to us, as far as our flesh is concerned. The new man in Christ has a different perspective of death by the power of the resurrection life of Christ in in us, but for the old man, death is an enemy. And we may expect that even while our spirit longs for deliverance and for final glory, our body will fight against death tooth and nail. And when we speak of the atoning work of Christ, we speak of the necessity of death for him. There was no way of making atonement for our sin except by the shedding of the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. He who lives made sacrifice for our sin. And that sacrifice was not by whim nor by a dream, not even by suffering culminating in a brief sleep or coma, he was dead. It culminated in the death of our head, Jesus Christ. Though it was not possible for the bands of death to hold him, yet our Savior's atoning work culminated in his death. But now notice the exact wording of this expression. He was dead. He was brought to death for the sins of his people. But the fact that this is spoken of in the past tense affirms what Christ had spoken from the cross immediately before giving up the ghost when he said, It is finished. That is, he accomplished the work which God had given him to do 
and therefore could not be held by death. That's a significant point, beloved, a most comforting truth of the Bible. Pictures of a dead Jesus, crucifixes, which our catechism also addresses with forthright language when it treats the violation of the second commandment, might be said to represent what Jesus was. They don't represent what he is. And therefore they misrepresent him. He was dead. He accomplished his work. The book of Hebrews affirms it. In Hebrews chapter 9, the last part of verse 26 through verse 28, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's why when we talk about his perfect work, we must not overlook the fact that his death is now over. Because he's the one that liveth and is and am alive forevermore. You know what that means, don't you? It means he accomplished his purpose in dying. He laid down his life for his people, and he has taken it up again according to his word of promise. He paid the debt for every last one of his elect, and they shall never have that debt laid before them by God again. God has spoken, having received the perfect sacrifice of his Son. He has given his amen to Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross and has raised him from the dead. And though we speak of his resurrection today, nearly 2,000 years after the fact, that resurrection bears the same message today as it did then, a message that can never be revoked. God still approves of the sacrifice of His Son. And its merits comes perpetually before Him as that which is well-pleasing in His sight. I tell you, people of God, This is a joyful theme. That is, he who was dead now lives forevermore. Furthermore, as the one who lives forevermore, Christ continues his work as our mediator. In the preceding context, John has been given to point out that he who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, has also made us 
kings and priests unto God, partakers of his own life. He's the one who radiates the glory of God and to whom has been given all dominion in heaven and on earth. And his people are gladly his and delight in his authority and long to do his will. They are thus because he works in them by his Holy Spirit, exercising his spiritual lordship over them. The exalted Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is busy preparing us for glory. That's our own experience, is it not? Not that we always see that. For his particular and individual works in our lives are often beyond our comprehension when it comes to just how they fit in his perfect plan. But as he feeds us by his word, he also sanctifies us. And he continues to work in us preparing us for that glory that is yet to be revealed. But his is also the dominion over all his enemies. The ever-living Christ is at this very moment exercising his dominion over those who do not believe in him and who oppose him. While the nations rage, the peoples imagine a vain thing. Psalm 2 tells us God has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. But the text before us emphasizes a particular aspect of Christ's dominion, and that is emphasized in the last clause of verse 18 and have the keys of hell and of death. 1 Corinthians 15, another chapter that sets forth so beautifully the fruits of Christ's resurrection, tells us that Christ must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. It speaks those words, as in our text, with direct reference to Christ's power over death. For immediately after having said, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, the apostle says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Fear not. Fear not. Our Lord says. Notice that. What's the source of all our fear? Death. The process of death. That's the source of all our fear. Listen now. 
Fear not. I am the ever-living Christ who has the keys of hell and of death. And the word hell here has reference to Hades, the abode of the dead, what we would call the grave. It's pictured as an inescapable prison. A mighty fortress which embraces all those whom death casts into it. But God reveals us to us a wonderful truth. Jesus Christ, the one who was dead, now lives and has the keys to that everlasting, that inescapable prison. He has the power and the authority to open the gates in order that his own may come forth into the glory of life everlasting. And he has those keys because he himself entered that abode and overcame the power of death. Fear not. For you and me who believe, that death is now the passageway into the sure hope of everlasting life and glory in God's abiding fellowship of joy and peace. Blessed are you who put your trust in Him. Finally, let your comfort be confirmed and strengthened by this revelation of His eternal existence. He is the first and the last. No one can speak that language but God Himself. Do you see, the one who so addresses us who also entered death for us and who conquered it, is himself God. He existed eternally. For whom God prepared a body. God prepared him a body because he is also the elect. The head of all those whom God has chosen eternally to be members in his covenant family. God prepared him a body because those elect whom he had chosen had to be saved from sin and death. God himself became flesh to save us. The same one who created all things by the word of his power has now called life out of death, having broken the bands thereof by giving his own life to the death of the cross. When he reveals himself to us, therefore, as the first and the last, he reveals himself as the sum and substance of all good to us who believe. He's all in all. The working in the working of our redemption and salvation, he begins, he carries on, he brings to completion, asking no help from us who could give him none.
He's the author and finisher of our faith, taking us into his own life. He's the I Am, Jehovah's salvation, come to save us from our sins and to save us from the wages of our sins, which is death. And he's alive forevermore. Woe to those who reject his gospel, who trifle with his truth, who would put off salvation until tomorrow, Because this ever-living Christ sees every insult to his person and work. Though he is ready to forgive all those who call upon him in sorrow of heart, he will surely hold to account those who continue in impenitence. What a dreadful day that will be. When the Lord of glory returns, his saints rejoicing in jubilant exultation, while those unbelievers and such as did not sincerely repent see that face, that face of majesty and glory whom they have insulted and the marks of suffering which they had despised. But blessed are you who put your trust in Him. He lives. He lives. He lives. The ever-blessed Savior lives forevermore. And He reveals His glory to you for whom He has walked the way of death. He calls you to turn from your sin. To give up that self-righteousness. To cast off that insufferable pride and to humble yourselves before Him. He who died for us now lives to take His people unto Himself. He has borne the wrath. He has extinguished the flames of hell for us. He's conquered death and opened the way to glory, and now He guides us by His counsel, ever leading us home. Don't you see, beloved, the glorified, ever-living Jesus is the remedy for all our fears. Jesus Christ, His person, His work, His office, His relation to us, is a gold mine of comfort. Let your hearts be filled with love for Him. Fear will be cast out. Study then your Lord. 
Look upon him. Never downplay his glory. And the wonder of his work in our salvation, in all our salvation, and rejoice in that salvation. Amen. Heavenly Father, we rejoice with thankful hearts for the gospel Thou hast spoken to us again today. For the wonder of the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. The first and the last. He who was dead and now lives forevermore. Abide with us in Him. Amen.